1 Thessalonians chapter 1. This morning we're going to be focusing on verses 6 and 7. I'd like to begin reading in verse 2, so we'll go from verses two, verse 2 through verse 7. I'd like to ask you to stand with me as we read God's Word, and we will then pray and ask for the Lord to bless our time together in the Word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that He has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful once again to to have your word in our own language, copies of it that that we are able to own and hold in our own hands. We pray, Father, that even as so much has changed over the last few weeks, that we would not take for granted the many blessings that you've given us, among which is that we have the Bible, we have your word given to us. We thank you also for, for the technology that you've given us that that even now affords us the ability to open the word together and to consider it this morning. We pray, Father, that your omnipresent Holy Spirit would minister to us wherever we are, that he would open the scriptures to us, we might understand them, that we might see our own hearts, that we might treasure Jesus more than we did when we woke up this morning. that we might love one another more than we did this morning, that we might lay down our lives anew today in response to what we see in your holy word. We pray these things with boldness because of the blood of Jesus and we pray it in his name. Amen. You may be seated. There is a high school quarterback down south who is getting a lot of attention. Last fall, he started on the varsity team as a 15-year-old freshman and threw for 34 touchdowns. He, He threw over 200 yards, for over 200 yards in all but one of his games. He was, when he was in the eighth grade, he was already getting offers from Division I colleges. His coach firmly believes that he has all the potential to be better than Peyton Manning. Now, he just happens to go to the same high school that Peyton Manning went to. He also just happens to have the same last name. His name is Arch Manning. He's named after his grandfather, Archie Manning, who played quarterback in the NFL for 13 seasons 
And he is the nephew of Peyton Manning and Eli Manning. The two of those men, between the, between the two of them, they have four Super Bowl rings. Eli Manning may make it into the Hall of Fame. There's some debate about that. Peyton Manning, they probably won't even vote. They'll just measure him for the jacket. Now, Peyton and Eli, why did they play quarterback? And why did they excel at this? You can find footage online of these two men as tiny little boys throwing the football with their father. And it makes sense that as they were growing up, they were watching and listening to, learning from, and imitating their father, who was a world-class athlete. Arch Manning now, who is who's 15, 16 year old, years old, he's grown up watching, listening to, learning from, and imitating his uncles and his grandfather. Now, genetics don't hurt. When, when, when Arch was 13, he was 6 foot 1 and almost 170 pounds. But what sets this young man apart when he steps up to the line of scrimmage is what's between his ears. He knows the quarterback position because he's been following in the footsteps of giants. The best way to learn, to grow, to progress is to follow in the footsteps of someone who has gone before and who has done well. It's that way in sports, it's that way in business, and it's that way in the church. The essence of discipleship is imitation. This is going to be so clear to us as we study the book of 1 Thessalonians. We as disciples imitate imitators of Jesus. We watch, listen to, learn from, and imitate those who have watched, listened to, learned from, and imitated Christ well. Paul began setting up this idea of imitation at the end of verse 5, the passage that we looked at last week, where he wrote, You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. I mentioned last week that that that's part of that long sentence that extends from verse 2 through verse 5. Just as Paul and his partners knew the Thessalonians' working faith, so also the Thessalonians witnessed the example of faith provided by these men. And Paul is thankful that the Thessalonians not only saw that example, but that they followed it. And we find here a theme that's going to carry us through this letter, believers imitate imitators of Christ. That's our first main idea this morning. Believers imitate imitators of Christ. Look with me again at at verse 6, the beginning of verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And, and you became imitators of us. And by became, becoming imitators of us, you became imitators of Christ because we are imitators of Christ. That's what Paul is saying in that short little clause at the beginning of verse 6. It's very similar to what Paul says in the first verse of 1 Corinthians 11 when he writes, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Again, this is the essence of discipleship. We follow those who follow Jesus. Jesus taught the disciples. The disciples taught others. Not just in word, but in deed. Jesus modeled 
faithfulness. And then the, the disciples followed that and they modeled faithfulness for others and on and on down to us. We benefit from seeing how others follow Jesus. That's how the Lord has designed the church to work. That's, that's John 13 and 14. In the flesh, we are the Lord's hands and feet and voice in one another's lives. The, the, the church is a long line of imitators of imitators of Jesus. Now, in, in what way did the Thessalonians become imitators of Paul and of the Lord? What specifically did they, did they imitate? Well, look at the rest of verse 6. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. They imitated Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy by receiving the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit because that's what Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy did. And Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy imitated Jesus by receiving the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit because that's what Jesus did. Now we want to pay close attention to, to those, those phrases. Receiving the word, much affliction, the joy of the Holy Spirit. What do these things mean? Well, we'll take them one by one and we'll begin by looking at the example of Jesus himself. Receiving the word. We, we might automatically, just on its face, conceive of receiving the word as heeding the gospel or being converted, but it's, it's broader than that. It refers to embracing the entire message of the Bible. What is the message of the Bible? The word, in, in its broadest sense, is God's revealed plan to save sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus and the disciples both understood that to be the message of the Old Testament, which was their Bible. So Jesus, if we think to that, that picture of him on the road to Emmaus with those two disciples, he's just been raised from the dead. They don't recognize who he is. He's on the road with them and he says to them, O oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. According to Jesus, his presence in the Old Testament as the center of the Old Testament is so clear that if you don't see it, you are foolish. He said to them, oh foolish ones, and slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Well, the Holy Spirit taught the apostles to read the Old Testament the exact same way that Jesus did. And that's why we find in Acts 17 that Paul goes into the synagogue at Thessalonica and says to these people to whom he's now writing a letter, he, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. And remember that the Scriptures for Paul at this point is the Old Testament. He reasons from the Old Testament explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. If we go over to the book of Acts, we find in, in chapter 26, verse 22, Paul says there, I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. That, that, that is broadly speaking the, the message of the Old Testament. That's the word. 
that God saves sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And of course, that's what the New Testament is about. That's, that's plain on its face. So, so to receive the word is to embrace that message and reality. It, it, for, for, for Jesus to receive it might look a little different than for you and I to receive it. He received it in that he embraced it as the Father's plan for him. Submitted to the Father's will, taking on human flesh and accomplishing our redemption in that plan. Read the Gospel of John alone and it's clear that Jesus was conscious that everything he was doing was in loving submission to the Father's plan. Jesus received the word, that is he embraced God's plan and he obeyed it in much affliction, the text says. There is so much that we could point to uh, pertaining to the Lord's affliction. Jesus fulfilled all righteousness, the Bible tells us. He fulfilled all righteousness, carrying the full weight of temptation for a lifetime without ever giving in. That lifetime of temptation reached its zenith in his 40 days in the wilderness as he was being tempted by the devil, all the while not eating a morsel or drinking a drop. He received the word. He embraced his role in the gospel in much affliction. There's also the, the, the near constant hounding that Jesus endured from the Jewish leadership. On virtually every page of the Gospels, he's the target of entrapment, he's being falsely accused, he's being blasphemed, he's being doubted by everyone from the Pharisees to John the Baptist to his own disciples to his own family. In a sense, he's, he is alone against the world. He's receiving God's plan for him. He's receiving the word in much affliction. The Garden of Gethsemane is an obvious place of the Lord's affliction. Jesus prayed there repeatedly for relief from what was to come and yet submitted himself to the Father's will. And while that was going on, those closest to him couldn't even stay awake to labor with him in prayer. He received the word. He embraced his role in the gospel in much affliction. And clearly, the Lord's passion all of the things that he did and were done to him in the final hours of his life. His passion is the apex of affliction, not just in his life, but in all human history. No one has ever suffered like Jesus. We rightly make much of his, of his physical suffering. It is unparalleled. But for Jesus, of, of purest conscience, to, to feel the weight of the guilt of all the sins of his people simultaneously would have been excruciating in the, the profoundest sense. And, and even worse, that guilt brought upon him the wrath of his father with whom he had only ever known blessed fellowship. By living his sinless life and, and humbling himself to the point of death on a cross to pay for our sins, by rising from the dead on the third day, Jesus was receiving the word. He was embracing God's plan. He was saying with this life, this is why I was born. This is the Father's plan. I embrace it. I make it my own. I submit. Jesus received the word in much affliction and he did it with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Joy of the Holy Spirit in this text speaks of joy empowered by the Holy Spirit. And we might wonder why would Jesus need the Holy Spirit to empower anything? Well, it's because Jesus was setting an example for us. 
we are to live by the power of the Spirit, and so that's what Jesus did. Jesus ministered by the power of the Holy Spirit. He did miracles by the power of the Holy Spirit. He cast out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit, fought temptation by the power of the Holy Spirit, preached by the power of the Holy Spirit. And references to this are voluminous. I'll just give you, I'll give you five. Matthew 4.1, Matthew 12.28, Luke 4.1. Luke 4.18 and Acts 10.38. One of the ministries of the Holy Spirit in the life of Christ was to bring joy into his heart as he served the Father. Luke 10.21 tells us explicitly that Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. or He rejoiced through the Holy Spirit. Of course, we see this joy at work as Jesus is doing the work of the Father, John 4.34, Jesus says, My food is to do the work of Him who sent me and to accomplish His work. And in John chapter 15, He commends that joy to the disciples, essentially saying to them, Hey, join me in this work for the Father that you might know my joy in yourself. Jesus also received the word, embracing his calling while looking forward to a joy that awaited him on the other side of death. Hebrews 12.2 speaks of this joy. It speaks of both Jesus' affliction and his joy by referring to him as the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Isn't it a wonderful thing? Isn't it a wonderful thing that Jesus isn't a do-as-I-say-and-not-as-I-do kind of Savior. When Jesus says, follow me, He means what every master of the day meant. He meant, do what I do. Imitate me. Deny yourself. Take up a cross. Receive the Word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. The Lord Jesus has has gone this road before us. He, he has paved it for us, securing our redemption. His affliction, that, that suffering that He endured on the cross, being raised from the dead, all the while remaining faithful to the Father, that is what saved us from the wrath to come. We repent of our sin and trust in Him, and that's why we are able to follow Him. His receiving the Word enabled us to receive it, although in a, in a different sense. We don't accomplish redemption but we receive it and proclaim its message. The, the apostles followed the Lord's example in these things. They received the word, that is, they received the message that God has saved sinners through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They received it by embracing it and obeying it. It, it has become a popular thing in, in, in our time to think of the gospel as an invitation an invitation is something that we may think of as something that, you, well, you could take it or you can leave it. It's, it's up to you. The Bible characterizes the gospel as a command. And the command is this. Repent, believe, follow. Romans 10.16. Romans 10.16. 2 Thessalonians 1.8. 2 Thessalonians 1.8. 1 Peter 4.17. Those are just three texts in the New Testament that speak of the gospel as a command to be obeyed. 
And the apostles obeyed that command. That is, they repented of their sin, they trusted in Jesus Christ, and they followed Him by making the gospel their lives and propagating that gospel unto death. Like Jesus, they received the word in much affliction. The apostles suffered from the earliest days of the church until their martyrdoms. Listen, listen to how, how just Paul details his own affliction. And see if, see if you don't hear in his description something that might sound something like your life, okay? This is 2 Corinthians 11, 24-28. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Now some of those things may, may seem out of touch to, to us, but I appreciate that that list includes persecution and other difficulties. Affliction is persecution, but it is also enduring the onslaught of false teaching and opposition and disunity within the church. It is also insomnia and physical ailments and concern for the spiritual well-being of, of other believers. And affliction is so certain for those who follow Jesus, that Paul wrote in Philippians 1.29, that it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe, but also suffer for His sake. And that was the mindset of all the apostles. They were given over to suffering even to the point of death. The apostles received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Our scripture reading this morning was from, was from Romans chapter 5 where Paul connects our, our suffering with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I'm going to read to you just a few verses from that same passage. This is verses 3 through 5. We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Now that was Paul. Peter says something very similar in 1 Peter 4, verses 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you also may rejoice and be glad when His, Spirit, when His glory is revealed. The Holy Spirit, as, as we saw last week, regenerates us. He moves us to believe in the gospel. Moves us to see our need for Christ. To repent and believe. He also produces joy in our hearts as we live the gospel in the midst of affliction. And the apostles are fantastic examples to us of this. Certainly this was on display for the Thessalonians as, as the Jews there in Thessalonica pursued Paul and his companions to persecute them. The Thessalonians saw Paul and Silvanus and Timothy remaining faithful to the Lord in the midst of that trouble. trouble and the Thessalonians 
became imitators of those imitators of Jesus. If you skip down to chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, look at verses 13 and 14. Paul sums the whole thing up for us there. He says, We also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God, which is at work. And you believers, for you believers became imitators of of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews. Essentially, that is discipleship. It is imitating imitators of Jesus. So what what about you? We find ourselves in days of affliction, do we not? Who are you imitating? We all imitate somebody. We all do. You put aside this prevalent modern cultural theme of being unique and going your own way. We all follow somebody. Who are you imitating? And and how is that reflected in the way that you are spending your time and your attention? Do you have people in your life who have followed the Lord longer and more faithfully than you have who are serving as a model for you and whom you are intentionally looking to as a model, thinking, I want to imitate them as they imitate Christ. If you don't, I would encourage you to find one or two or more. And the quarantine doesn't make this impossible. In fact, some of us have more time on our hands than than we normally would. We just have to use the technology that we have and meet virtually or, or call each other on the phone instead of face-to-face. So I would encourage you, contact somebody that you know to be imitating Jesus well and just ask them, hey, can we spend some time together? Can we, can we talk about Jesus? Can we talk about life together? And when this quarantine is over, can, can I just follow you to the grocery store and can I help you cut your grass? Can I just watch you do life and learn from you? And certainly we're not saying that we shouldn't directly imitate Jesus, not at all. Dive into the Scriptures, meditate on Him, meditate on His works, His character. Find where you're not like Him and intentionally by prayer and and the Word, kill off those things that aren't like Him. Replace them with the things that are like Him. But He has set His church up so that we are helped toward Christ-likeness by imitating others who are imitating Him. Discipleship is imitating imitators of Jesus. But the road doesn't end there. Next, we find that believers provide an example for others to imitate. Believers provide an example for others to imitate. Let's take a running start at verse 7 by beginning again in verse 6. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that... You became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. The Thessalonians followed the example of Jesus and the apostles not only by receiving the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, but they followed the example of Jesus and the apostles by becoming an example for others. Now here's the thing. This happens or can happen unintentionally can happen unintentionally. When you are following the Lord faithfully, you're going to draw the attention of other believers and inspire them to greater faithfulness without intending to. But the Scriptures call us 
to intentionality. I would, I would invite you to look at verse 7 again. Look at the word example. That word implies intentionality. The, word, the Greek word underneath, underneath it means mold. A, a mold is a fixture into which you pour molten metal to create identical parts or patterns. And, and, and this means that our lives as Christians, they're not oriented just toward personal holiness. I, I'm not just to look at my life as I'm going to get to a place of Christ-likeness, but I'm intended to see my life as a mold for others. I'm, I'm to draw the attention of other believers and inspire them to greater faithfulness. By using this word, Paul indicates that our lives are intended to be oriented toward producing other imitators of imitators of Christ. And this is the idea that's explicitly taught in 2 Timothy 2.2 where Paul instructs Timothy, what you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. In other words, I'm molding you, you mold others, and then they mold others. And that is what discipleship is. Intentionality oozes from this letter to the Thessalonians. Remember the clause that precedes our passage this morning. Paul wrote, Just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. They were living a particular way for the sake of the Thessalonians. Paul and his ministry companions had in mind that they were living and speaking in such a way as to have a positive molding effect on the discipleship of those around them. And that intentionality is evident in the rest of the letter as well. Paul and the others wanted their own working faith, their own laboring love and persevering hope to be evident to the Thessalonians. Beginning in, in chapter 1, or the, beginning in chapter 2, I'm sorry, he reminds them of the circumstances under which they originally came to Thessalonica. If you look at chapter 2, look at, look at verse 2 with me. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, now how would they know that? They don't live in Philippi. They know that because Paul and Silvanus and Timothy told them about it. They told them how they suffered. As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. If we were to go through the rest of chapter 2, we would see Paul pointing to example after example of how he and Silvanus and Timothy lived conspicuously godly lives in front of the Thessalonians for their good. And that whole thing is summed up in chapter 2, verses 10 through 12, where he writes, You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. We, we lived a godly example in front of you and charged you to follow it. Now listen carefully to this sentence. By the Holy Spirit's design... Paul and his companions set an example of setting an intentional example. I'm going to say it again. By the Holy Spirit's design, Paul and his companions set an example of setting an intentional example. They modeled intentionality for us. 
And the Thessalonians followed it, which is Paul's point in 17. And, and they followed it so thoroughly and with such gusto that their example spread to places far beyond what you and I may have even thought possible. Here's a wonderful truth. The more faithful that we are in imitating imitators of Christ, the broader and farther reaching will be the influence of our example. Some of us may not have an appreciation for the geography of ancient Greece. I will not cast stones at anybody who doesn't know anything about Macedonia or Achaia. I had to look it up. Thessalonica was in Macedonia. So you could think of Macedonia as kind of like a state. And Achaia is a state that's just to the south of Macedonia. That's a big chunk of real estate. And if we were to superimpose those geographic dimensions, Macedonia and Achaia, we were to superimpose those dimensions over the United States, placing Thessalonica where Cincinnati is, then this region of Macedonia and Achaia would reach as far west as Springfield, Illinois, and as far south as Nashville, Tennessee. Think about that for a second. Can you imagine being a church filled with believers who are such devoted imitators of imitators of Jesus that our example is felt in Springfield and Nashville without the aid of any modern technology? That's exactly what was happening with the Thessalonians. So zealous were they to imitate imitators of Christ. That's the power of receiving the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, following others who are following Christ and intentionally setting the same example for others. Some of us may feel somewhat handicapped in this because of the pandemic. I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, that the pandemic creates an excellent context of affliction for us to live the truth of the gospel with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that others are attracted to Jesus. Let's not, not lose this opportunity to apply this text right now. So to that end, I want to ask you a couple of groups of questions. And I want you to consider them in the context of the pandemic and in the context of life in general. So the first chunk of questions, okay? Who have you been imitating? I'm returning to this. I know I've, I've talked about this already this morning, but I want to return to it. Who have you been imitating? Did you know you get to decide? We, we, all, we all make decisions all the time about this. You get to decide who to imitate. So who have you been imitating? And with those influences in mind, toward what are they influencing you? Do, do you need to look for new influences to imitate? Are you paying attention to a certain, a certain message during this pandemic that's leading you in a particular direction that you ought not go? Or, if you have good influences, do you need to press even further into them and imitate them even more? Where are you? Second chunk of things to consider. What example are you setting? What example are you setting? If you think of yourself as a mold, what kind of parts are you churning out? If someone wants to follow Christ, would they want to follow your example? Would they want to be molded by you? 
Can, can you legitimately say with Paul to other people, follow me as I follow Christ? Some of us may not be able to say that with any kind of conviction or persuasiveness because we haven't been following Christ recently. If some of us were to say, follow me as I follow Christ, we might hear in response, oh, I had no idea that you were following Christ. And we, we, we don't have to conclude from that that we're not truly believers. It may simply be that we're not growing in Him, we're not pursuing Him, we're not following Him, we're not living conspicuously for Him and speaking of Him. In a sense, listen, brothers and sisters, there's an easy fix for that. It's an easy fix for that. It's repentance and accountability. And so... Some of us may need to approach a brother or sister virtually, approach a brother or sister and ask for help. Say something like, hey, I've, I've, I've not been following the Lord like, like I've, I'm called to. And as a result, the example that I've set for those around me is anything but the right one. But I want to be faithful and I want to lead others to Him. I'm repenting of this, but I need some help. Would you be willing to talk to me regularly? For the sake of stirring me up to greater faithfulness and for the sake of holding me to this conviction that I have right now. Listen, the enemy would have us to believe that if we've set a poor example, it's all over. If we change now, we'll only come across as a hypocrite. The best course is now to just be quiet. That's what, the, that's what the enemy would have us to think. And I wonder if anyone is thinking that right now. I've set such a bad example already. I've blown it. I'm just going to look like a hypocrite if I start talking about Jesus. Listen, that's only true. You will only sound like a hypocrite if the, if, if the change doesn't last. But listen to me. Some of the most impactful people in the church will be those who were lukewarm, but who repented and followed ha hard after the Lord. And people saw the before, and then people saw the after and concluded there's something powerful at work here. It must be the gospel in the hands of the Holy Spirit. And I'm telling you, it's the devil that doesn't want that to happen. And so he convinces us we've already blown it. And I'm telling you, Jesus speaks a different word. Jesus makes all things new. He makes all things new. And not just at conversion, but he is continually making all things new as we follow him. So if you've set a bad example, just... just Repent of that and seek that accountability. The Spirit of Christ delights to blow fresh wind into the sails of the repentant and to give us what we need to receive the Word, that is, to embrace this message as the purpose of our life in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that our example becomes infectious and others will be drawn to Christ. Those of us who name the name of Jesus, we call ourselves disciples. What that means is that we are imitators of imitators of Christ, setting examples for other people to imitate. And that's what this text calls us to. Brothers and sisters, I, I, I again would, would say to you that we are in a wonderful time to do this with great gusto and effectiveness. Because people out there right now are looking for hope. And we know where that hope lies. It's in Jesus Christ. So let us imitate imitators of Christ. and Let us provide an example that others can imitate and, and savor Jesus, the Savior. I'm going to pray and, and we will enjoy a moment of, of brief silent reflection before we 
close our time together. Let's pray. Father, the the beauty of the gospel is evident in so many ways and part of, is, part of it is in the genius of the gospel. That Jesus saved us by walking a difficult road before us. He paved it by saving us from our sins. He calls us to follow him in self-denial, taking up our cross, living for him. We praise you, Lord, that the gospel is not the story of a Savior who says, do as I say, not as I do. And we pray, Father, that in these difficult days, we would look to Jesus. We would look to his perfect life, his perfect life of receiving your plan, your gospel, his place in it, receiving it with with joy in much affliction. And Lord, help us then to look at our situation and see that we are redeemed people in much affliction. Lord, help us to receive his gospel, live his gospel in the midst of that affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. And Father, by the way that we receive that, let us do it with such enthusiasm and love and conspicuousness that other people, believers and non-believers, are drawn to Jesus that they might follow him too. Father, for those of us who have, who have not set a good example, perhaps ever, perhaps just in, in recent days, perhaps just this morning, I pray, Father, that you would, first of all, move us to repentance, but then assure us that Jesus is a Savior who changes people. I pray, Lord, that you would silence the lies of the devil who tells us that we've already blown it. And help us to be effective for your kingdom by repenting and turning the page and following after you. We ask, Lord, that 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 would take place in the lives of all of us, Father, that we would become so zealous to be imitators of imitators of Christ that the influence of this church would be felt states away for your glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.